you know, brave women really scare a lot of men. <laughs> so, I mean, look, this whole community that we have is really interesting because I think what's happening is that people like us who are aware and who are aware of all the issues that are going on, you know, can be loud and call things out and actually get the applause. So I think you'll be surprised. I, I would bet you that you're becoming more popular by the month. I can promise you that because it happened to me. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. That's me. That song was about me. I'm Gabby Dunn from the song you just heard. <laughs> sound like I am just happened to be in that song but actually that song was written for me so it's not like a cool like my name is Angie and also the song is Angie anyway you guys remember the Roxanne Gay episode of Bad With Money the one where we talked about how creative women not only have to fight ridiculously hard to get paid for the work they already fought ridiculously hard to get in the first place but then also have to spend countless hours dealing with harassment and vitriol from trolls and stalkers and clueless, straight white, cis male industry gatekeeper goons who can't handle what we have to say? Did you pat yourself on the back after listening to that episode? Did you give yourself the Woke Bay Award? Did you think... Wow, I'm so glad Gabby addressed that sensitive topic. Hopefully this podcast will now pivot to less intense issues. If you did, I have some very bad news for you. But if you're a fan of mine, I have some great news for you. In one of my initial conversations with my producer about this show, I described myself as a bridge-burning live wire. It's partially something I'm trying to be better about. For instance, you know, I wrote that really amazing... A fusion article about money that people really seem to enjoy. And then uh, Allison and I immediately lost out on an opportunity for a brand deal because the company was nervous about what I had written about how YouTubers make money because it's not a pretty picture and they didn't want to be associated with it. And I hadn't really thought that through and it ended up affecting Allison. Okay, so that's the one part of me that wonders just how much I've lost out on by running my mouth. But there's another part of me that is like, I don't want to work with those people anyway. They're bad people. It's the part that will not stop using this podcast partially as a platform for talking about how Viacom is stingy (laughs) and it underpays people who make the content, which keeps it rich and relevant. It's the part that will continue to be vocal about the degree to which men who engage in the kind of hateful sexist garbage I talked about with Roxanne usually don't face any consequences for their behavior, while women are routinely punished for speaking out when we're the victims of it. Which brings me to... My maybe favorite person on Twitter, Lexi Alexander. Talking about these types of things may have cost me a job or two, but it also brought Lexi into my life. And for that alone, it has been worth it. Lexi Alexander is a fucking badass. I don't know if you can hear me punching my fist as I say that. She is a gifted filmmaker. And after a long career as a world kickboxing champion and combat instructor for the United States Marine Corps, she moved into directing. Her first short was nominated for an Oscar in 2003. Since then, she's continued directing feature films like Marvel's Punisher Warzone and also lots of television episodes like for Supergirl and for Arrow, earning her particular acclaim for the visceral reality of her fight scenes. Like our recent guest, Carrie Wade, however, Lexi has a second job she didn't ask for, which is relentlessly calling attention to how bad the situation for female directors in Hollywood is. 
She wrote a widely publicized essay on the subject for IndieWire in 2014, and since then she hasn't stopped speaking out about the rampant sexism and discrimination women have to contend with, for which she's earned her fair share of haters. But as Lexi recently told NPR's All Things Considered, She's not afraid of internet dumbasses. I'm also the kind of person like, please dox me. You don't even need to dox me. I will give you my address and I'll wait for you at my doorstep. God, she's the coolest person. (laughs) So yeah, Lexi is tough and fearless. But that doesn't mean it's easy for her. As you'll hear in the interview, the blowback she's gotten is scarier than staring down a gang of football hooligans or a trained kickboxer. And I'm not talking about blowback on the internet. I'm talking about blowback in real life from sets she's worked on. She's a powerhouse, she's inspirational, and I really hope she likes how this episode came out because I feel like if she doesn't, she will find me and she will snap me in half. I come from a very working class family. my parents divorced, and so my mother was a single working mom with three kids. I think you call that a latchkey kid. Like, I mean, I was alone all day, and I had the key around my neck, and um, and we didn't have a lot of money. And the thing in Germany that's not so good, I mean, there's, there's a great way of, like, making sure everybody has to eat and everybody goes to school, but... There's still a very aristocratic uh, system that they don't want to admit to, but that exists, which means that when you are working class and you have aspirations of being in the film industry, it's like a joke. Like people will actually laugh about you when you say that. Why? Because it's a creative field? Yeah. Also because it's kind of almost considered a hobby. Like, you know, if you look at the German movies, Americans don't realize that they almost all have a Vaughn in the name. Oliver Vaughn Hirschberger, Cartier von Garnier. Like, it's a very aristocratic system. And they, almost everybody who made it in the German film industry comes from a family that can afford to send a kid to a very expensive film school. There's nothing else there. There's only film schools that cost a lot of money and that you have to have five references from people already in the industry to get in. I mean... I come from a town that has a big factory called BASF. So that's a chemistry factory. Everybody in my family either worked there or had no job, you know. So there was nobody I could call and say, I want to go to this film school. And literally, when I used to say that as a kid, people would laugh about me. So how did you how did you do that? Well, I have a very stubborn uh, (laughs) mind. First of all, I wanted to just be a very famous martial artist. And so... I was a competitive fighter, and um, I traveled around Europe and the world then um, with the uh, German national karate team. And then I remember fighting in Atlantic City in, I think, 94. And I won the grand championship. Like, I, I had already won all the European championships, and that was, like, the biggest one to win. And um, Chuck Norris was the ones giving us trophies. And he, at the time, I mean, you have to remember, that was a time that... B-movies with martial artists weren't dead yet. There was still like this uh, Cynthia Rothrock kind of genre and Don the Track and Wilson. And there was this idea that if you're a famous martial artist and you're really good, you could like have a career in it, either that or in stunts. And so I kind of approached that. And Chuck Norris uh, like a bro- sponsored my green card, wrote a letter basically to the um, INS for me to get into the country even sent me to like a well-known acting school here in LA and said you should go to this school, which I did. 
Except of I hated, um, I hated being in front of the camera. And so I quickly said, okay, so how do I get behind it? And then I was a stunt woman for a while, um, just to really finance my life here. Because again, I came with $2,000, which didn't last very long. It was all my savings. And um, I had to like get a job. And so I started as a stunt woman first. But in the back of my mind, I, I kept wondering, like, how can I actually become a director? How did you transition or how did you start doing it? Well, I went to this extension class at UCLA um, that was about short films because I had read that some directors made it with short films. And uh, in that class, we did like a couple of short films and, you know, it was just to practice and they were pretty bad. But I kind of figured out, okay, this is actually if I ever do it for real, this is how you do it. And then I spent a year traveling around the United States and giving seminars in martial arts, um, which people paid me for to go to their school and teach. And um, I, uh, I basically collected, saved all the money. I mean, I didn't spend the time. There was a very funny story where the Arabs who owned the gas station at my corner, the corner of my street, were so concerned about me also because obviously I'm Arabs as well. So they kept speaking to me, but they kept thinking I'm really, really poor and I don't have anything to eat because I just used this one credit card and bought two two Nami uh, fish cans and uh, slim somethings. I don't even know all the bad American stuff that I shouldn't have been eating. But I was like obsessed with putting this money on the side uh, on the side to get a budget. I believe I had thirty five thousand dollars put aside and I made this sh a short film called Johnny Flinton on location and it was a true story about a boxer I knew back home and that was nominated for an Oscar it was 40 minutes long so it was kind of I call it my epic short film um, but what it was category? nominated for an, a short like life action short but how did you you just submitted it to be nominated you know, actually, I had a real plan. And it's, again, something that people had laughed about. But I, you know, once I've, I tried to figure out the career, I actually read everything obsessively. And I also read how people got short films into the Oscars. And it's super predictable who they nominate, what they like, and um, also on how you get it in. I mean, so far, really, only the Europeans take advantage of it, uh, to be honest. But you have to have it in a movie theater for three days. And that's where most people give up. But, you know, there's movie theaters you can pay. Like I paid the Lambler $500 to run my short film three days in a row at 11 a.m. So then you qualify it and then they decide. And if it's good, it's going to make it. So that uh, CAA signed me at the time and that kind of started my career. Were you like, now I'm signed by CAA so everything will be smooth sailing? Um, I did think that. I had no clue. Um, you know, I grew up in so many male-dominated environments, uh, from martial arts to, like, you know, my, my brother used to have to babysit me, so he took me to soccer games. That's where my first feature, Queen Street Hooligans, came from. But, you know, in all my time in martial arts, growing up in boxing gyms and dojos, on, on uh, football fields with hooligans, I had never faced as much... Uh, gender bias and discrimination and sexism as in Hollywood. First of all, CAA thought I would have a career after this 40-minute short film that was nominated for an Oscar. But even though I went up for everything that everybody else went up for, I didn't book anything. Then they said, you need to make a feature. 
I did go, I developed, I wrote, I raised the money for my own feature. That was Queen Street Hooligans. And that film, you know, won every award. I think it was one of the first, like, it was the second film at South by Southwest who won both jury and audience award. But it didn't get picked up for a big distribution deal. And that was the time when people start saying, well, if you were Guy Ritchie, this would be all, all over the place already. And even then I was like, I don't know. I can't see Hollywood not wanting to make money with anybody. But it wasn't until a friend asked me to write a script about something um, that really had to do with uh, women in tech. And once I looked into the issue in another industry, it suddenly became so obvious to me what's going on. You know, I was always trained that if you lose a fight, you don't ever play the, the referees. You don't ever blame the other side. Like, you should have just been good enough to beat them. End of story. And my, my trainers were very strict with that. Like, there was no chip on your shoulder. There was no excuses. Like, you should just be undeniably good. And so when you grow up with this attitude... You know, it's very hard for you to say out loud that a bias exists. Yeah, there's the thing that I talked to Roxanne Gay about, which is that you don't have to be twice as good. You don't have to be three times as good. You have to be four times as good. And even then, it doesn't matter. Exactly. I'm telling you, it's getting harder even because, you know, you have to imagine that sometimes we are thrown into an environment that feels attacked. You know, if I'm on the ground with a crew who feels that, oh, here comes affirmative action hire. Um, it can get very hostile. You know, I'm obviously not somebody who throws the towel very easily, but I tell you I've been tempted a few times. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about the IndieWire essay from a couple years ago. You wrote in it, uh, all female directors must fall into one or two categories, difficult or indecisive, bitch or dits. And then I love, hello, my name is Lexi Alexander, difficult bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, d yeah, can you talk a little bit about the pressure to fall into those two categories in your work? Yeah, I mean, it's actually funny that I wrote that two years ago because it's become even more of an issue for me now than it was then. I have a whole story on Green Street where the transport guy who's supposed to take the crew from uh, the set to base camp, he wouldn't drive because he was told he cannot leave the set unless the director is in the car. And the people in the bus kept telling him, the director is here, she's the director. And he says, no, the director, director. And like we couldn't figure out why he's not driving. And I thought somebody was punking me. But only when my like, <laughs> you know, older, crouchy first AD came in, Mark, uh, he was satisfied because he literally could not comprehend that I was the director of this movie. You know, I mean, again, like I grew up in gyms and with a, in, inside a hooligan firm. I actually grew up with people who did nothing else but either beat another hooligan firm or like bully each other and have this like weird humor that's really aggressive humor. Like I don't have a thin skin, but I have lately been in situations where I thought I was going to lose my mind. But the part of that is, is that it's the double standard because, you know, somebody will say to me, but Lexi, you know, that's not really sexism because this DP is an asshole to everybody, male or female. And then I have to explain, even if I'm not too lazy to explain it, because sometimes I feel like, why do I have to be the damn, you know, diversity teacher on every set? But when I'm not feeling too lazy, I will explain the sexism here isn't this DP who's treating everybody like an asshole. It's how I can react back to him versus how a guy can react. Like it's act the stories of 
guys getting at each other's throat in our industry are actually cute. You know, like you have Tom David or Russell, Michael Bay, we hear the stories left and right. Oh, this this John Favreau and the DP went each other's bum, and this guy punched this guy. These are all like cowboy stories. They're cool. But I always say to people, what do you think will happen? Like I, I can actually break a lot of guys' jaws, to be honest. Like I could take somebody down. But what do you think would happen? Yeah, I think about... Um Went with Suicide Squad, where they were like how Jared Leto was able to behave on that set versus and then people were like, if you think Viola Davis could have behaved that way, like there's no way. I often describe it as you being thrown into a pack of dogs and there's a certain, you know, dog like behavior that you have to like. You know, it's expected uh, of you to survive, except male dogs are forgiven for this behavior, but mine will turn into an instant crazy reputation. Oh, my God. If you if you yelled at people the way that like that tape of David O. Russell. Fuck you. I'm just trying to fucking help you. Do you understand me? I'm being a fucking collaborator. I'm just trying to help you figure out the fucking picture. Hey, bitch. I'm not here to be fucking yelled at. I worked on this fucking thing for three fucking years not to have some fucking... Cut yell at me in front of the fucking crew when I'm trying to fucking help you, bitch. Figure it out yourself. Well, I have to figure it out. Yeah, fuck yourself. Like, yeah. you would never work again. Exactly. And also, like, you know, every time I even hint at this on Twitter and I say, you know what, I had a really tough time. People would be like, but Lexi, I mean, come on, you could take a guy down like that. And I, I don't think people realize this. Yes, I could, but I can't because there's a double standard of how I am judged versus how a guy is judged. Like, it's not it's not a cool cowboy story uh, for yeah, people it to becomes, say, well, Lexi then she took. Yeah. Lexi is hard exactly. to work with. Yeah. Exactly. So basically, oftentimes I'm on sets and I have to take it. I mean, I'm literally paying my uh, martial, the guy I take uh, this new martial arts that I've started a year ago. I've I've paid him to intensively only focus on on me, just like give up all of his other famous private students, only because I said, listen, I cannot be in a situation again where I literally feel like I'm going to panic and have an anxiety attack. Like, I need to know how to get through something if everybody is attacking me and I can't defend myself and I can't hit back. And so we're doing this whole week. I've spent time with him focusing on breathing and breathing through. And literally, he punches me in the face. Like, he punches me in the face. He snaps this knife at me. And I have to basically just breathe through it. But I'm thinking to myself, like, why am I doing this? I mean, I, you know, if I wanted this, I could have gone into special forces. Yeah. I had my, my therapist just not similar to your thing at all. But my therapist just told me I should like ice my face because when I was talking about going into meetings and stuff, she was like, you're holding your face at such tension and such like even poker face for so long that it's causing like tension and pro- like you need to put ice on your face. Yeah. I, I I totally buy that. And it's the most ridiculous advice you can get. I hear that kind of thing all the time. And I'm like, at some point I snapped at him and I said, you know, if you were me, you wouldn't be relaxed either. Like, you know, I'm afraid to not be tense. And it's hard. It's hard, you know. And if it would just be about me, I probably wouldn't talk about this. But at one point, you know, I said to a friend of mine, I said, the problem here is, is that if I have such trouble with this, I said, there's probably not a lot of women who grew up like I did in such tough environments. And if I have such trouble with it, I don't know how 
any other young woman is going to get through this who just starts off, you know? Yeah, like the whole pushback of like, well, you know, if if more women or people of color, queer people wanted to be directors, then there would be diversity. I'm sure some of them go, it's not worth it. It's funny you talk, you and I talk about this now this week because literally last week I said I'm I this is the end for me of like tweeting about this stuff and speaking so much about this stuff because I feel very abandoned by the other women directors who don't speak about it. There's I mean it's scary. I I think all the time about all the jobs that I've probably lost because of wh- how I talk about things or like my comedy partner saying that we went into a meeting and the person found me aggressive. But if Allison and I don't walk in and I and, and if I don't go, we are the funniest writing duo on YouTube right now. We are the only two women making scripted content on YouTube. And be, that the fact that we don't have a television show is an atrocity. If I don't talk like that, nobody else like I'm, I can't walk into a room and go, I don't know, give us a show or don't whatever. Like I can't do that. Yeah. And I don't I mean, I don't even know why anybody would call you aggressive. I mean, that's another thing like it's for us there seems to be this what does it take for us not to upset intimidate or make an impression that we're aggressive what does it take there was a show that I uh, was asked to direct which I did last year I'm trying to like make sure nobody guesses which one Um, but but, um, I went there and the first thing I hear is that the big problem person on the show is the lead actress right and I get these stories about like, well, you know, don't be mad if she doesn't talk to you. Don't be mad. And I, I, I walked in there thinking, oh, my God, this has got to be the worst person. She wasn't at all. She was the most professional person I ever met. And you know what? She just had a kid. And what she didn't want to do is screw around on set. She wasn't shooting the shit with people because she had a baby. She was a working mom who wanted to get home when her work was done. But when she was on set, she knew her lines. She was brilliant at it. And there was nothing bad to say about her. But that's the thing. Like, I could just see how she came off as this like ice queen to everybody else because she wasn't doing that thing that we supposedly have to do to make everybody relax around us. And this hasn't happened once. This has happened several times to me now where anytime an actress is super professional, but maybe not super friendly, not super kind, she doesn't bring muffins to set, then she's a bitch. Do you know of jobs that you've lost for being outspoken or ever had like a quandary where you're like, Okay, how do I keep my mouth shut so I can do this job that I want to do? Or Yes, but here's something very interesting that's happened. And I'm going to say this now because I, I want to encourage other people like you and like anybody else who is outspoken on social media. In the very higher up offices, okay, there are actually people who now seek me out. I mean, there's a secret group of executives who are people of color and women who are very high up, and by high up, I mean really high up, who have literally invited me as their only guest to this secret dinners to tell them everything. And they want to change things. And why this always has to be so secret, I don't know, but at least they're effective. And I write them a report, like I write them things of like what's happening and what's going down. And I can see them making changes. I mean, it's very funny because I feel like I'm now like a spy, <laughs> who like the the born of the industry who is like tough enough to be sent into the toxic 
masculinity environments where some shit is going down that makes every female director who's worked on that show not go back. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking about how you've been disappointed by other female directors, like it has been interesting to me to see in the industry former friends of mine who are minorities reach a certain level and then I go, well, what about the other minorities that you could help? And they're like, I'm not interested. I mean, I hate them and I don't know how they sleep. But part of it, there's also this place where there's this particular woman director that I cannot stand. She actually voted against many. She's a woman of color on top of it. And she voted against many, many things that could help both women and even more women of color. And I said, how can she do that when she is successful? And then I realized, actually, when you read up about what tokenism is, where it comes from and what it's supposed to do, that's a part of a system. I mean, this is, this is like the art of war. They have done it right. They have put people into places, but they have also told these people that you will lose this privilege if you are not on our side. Of course. Now, when, when you are a single mother, which this woman is, when you are a mother, or I, she's not a single mother, but only she works and her husband doesn't, right? And so now you, you live in America and you think, who's going to pay my mortgage and who is going to send these kids to college? I mean, again, this is not like Sweden or Denmark where no matter what, you and your kids are taken care of, which is kind of great about these countries. Germany, not so much anymore. But th this is America where you're like one paycheck away from living in tent town somewhere. So there's part of me that understands this. And especially women directors, we've been told constantly there can only be one. But I don't have kids. I, you know, again, like I also have two passports. Like I don't feel like I could be homeless the next day. And I feel a lot of women who have fought for these token positions feel that. And so I, there is some empathy. I worry all the time, like I'm a member of the LGBT community and I push very hard for queer people behind the scenes. And a lot of times if they don't deliver on their job, it falls on me. So like if I say like, I want this trans man editor and I push for it and then the editor doesn't do exactly the job that the director wants, then I'm in trouble. Because right. I because I represent all queer people and I'm responsible for all queer people. And like we're not individuals. We like all represent each other. And it's crazy. Right. And you would be absolutely right with that. You will take the fall. Uh, and I've taken the fall before for people I recommended many, many, many times. And, and there's also that thing that, you know, a lot of times marginalized people who have not had that much work experience you know, you compare them to guys who've had 15 times as more that the showrunner was about to hire, but then they didn't and hired somebody else instead because diversity, diversity, you know, we continuously are looking bad. I mean, again, it's like one of those zero-sum gays. You, you push somebody in who doesn't have that much experience, it'll look bad on everybody. But then I can also tell you from experience, if you actually show up and you're better than most people... <laughs> I mean, you better like, you know, dress warm because there will be a lot of hate from people who did not expect you to be that good. Yeah. Now you're too good. And now it's upsetting. Correct. But also but also like, you know, I think a lot about Jill Soloway's um, push for trans talent on Transparent and how she brought a bunch of trans people who weren't TV writers and like fostered them and taught them how to write. Like maybe it's not enough to be like. Now we have this editor who's a diversity hired, push them in to swim with no floaties, like be willing to be like, 
hey, let me sit with you and like tell you, like talk to you about the edit process. And like that one time of you doing that, I know it sucks, but like can give them a career, you know? I I just talked with a showrunner about this. He's getting ready to staff up his show. And he contacted me and said, you know, I'm looking for these kind of people and I, I don't know how to exactly ask for them because it's not, I mean, it, for example, if you want somebody gay, it's not politically correct to ask somebody in an interview if they're gay, okay? So I, I there are people who want to change, but they don't always know how to go about it. And we then had this conversation and he also wanted to have like different levels, like the beginners who have never done anything and then the middle and then the people who could be like, co-executive producers and I said to him you know so many guys get literally picked off you know I I mean when I read the story of how the true detective guy actually got his show on or even like the stranger things guys like there's these like random pick out of obscurity because they had a great twitter account now they staff writers on a show these stories happen all the time to guys and I said you know get some people from really marginalized communities and even though they don't know anything about how a, a a room works, teach them. But I can tell you that I have people, I know people that are the smartest people on the planet, but they wouldn't know how to break a script, but you could teach them. Right. And he was actually open to that. Although I also understand that the minute they get a green light, they under pressure and they have a fucking tough job. So some of the higher, higher up executives who have these secret dinners with, with me, I said to them, you can't put it all on the showrunner. It's too much stress. They're trying to deliver a multi-million dollar show. You can't also make them the diversity officer. I mean, our industry is just so behind. Like, why don't we have proper people who do this? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Or like when shows tweet out their writer's room picture and it's all white. I know this is like a very cynical way to put it, but even from like a PR or marketing standpoint for your show, it Mm -hmm. looks bad. Like you get negative press. Right. For example, when um, Orange is the New Black got in trouble for uh, writing about Black Lives Matter and then there's this, of course, it was completely off and the photo was released of, oh dear, they don't have a black person. Like, honestly, I don't watch the show, I but I do admire this showrunner because it's a great show with a lot of women representation. But you don't write about Black Lives Matter without a black person in the room. You know, here's the thing about uh, Orange is the New Black. The writer's guild has a special clause for a consultant. You know, these kind of writers, you can bring them in for one episode. And all I see this working for is guys who are really busy. Like literally this guy who was hired to write a couple of Flash episodes. Oh, I write all these movies, so I'm too busy to actually be a staff writer. Oh, how about we hire you as a consultant? Like this literally works only for the guys who actually already are too busy. Instead of saying, hey, the Writers Guild has this great clause where we can bring in somebody for a consultant on the script. All you had to do was, like, put the word out to Black Twitter, and they would have had somebody for you in a second. You would have had thousands of people to choose from who would have nailed this. I could have given you 10 off the top of my head who would have nailed the subject. But no, you had to do it on your own. For what? So you saved $25,000. That's when Net- Netflix right now is spending six, what did they say, three billion, some insane number on content. You don't need to save $25,000 of the consultant fee. Like that's really unnecessary. Can you talk about the category rep for women in the Directors Guild 
pointed out that the DGA studio diversity agreements, like ethnic minorities and men and women of all ethnicities and then women, like it's all one category. Have you ever read uh, Paulo Freire's book, uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed? No. It's a great, great book. But if you can ever understand a system that is so set in place to like work against any kind of fairness and equality, the labor unions really have done it. I mean, certain labor unions. I mean, you think of labor unions as a good thing because you think of Mother Jones. But I'm telling you, the DGA, I, I don't know what. I mean, they're fucking brilliant at keeping people out. The DGA has set up a system that leaves the status quo in place. And it cannot be, I mean, we put forward this motion that would basically turn diversity into three parts so that showrunners have to either tap into uh, men of color, women of all color, or women of color. And that would have actually qualified women of color who have the lowest percentage of representation. It would have qualified them for two different uh, categories rather than one, because they always get picked last, right? Yeah. And when we voted for that, literally uh, all these black women voted against it because... There is a system going on and it's divisive and they've been told that, you know, if we don't stick together, you know, as all the marginalized people, I mean, it's so brilliant. When I saw it, I remember live tweeting about it. I was in shock. But, well, it's like when when you ask poor people in America why they vote against their interest, it's brilliant. They've been manipulated to do so. People always out there saying that we can't find women. We can't find people of color. We don't know where these directors are. We've begged the DGA. The DGA has a lot of money. They have money in real estate. They are very, very, very rich labor union. Even when there were strikes and everybody was thinking of going broke, the DGA always had. And look, there's official government papers that show where they have their money. This is not a poor union. And we've begged and begged and begged them to spend money on a website that features this talent that the showrunner can go on or the assistant to a showrunner can go on and within seconds find the right diversity talent. No chance. They won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that argument of I can't, I just couldn't find any is the laziest, like just the worst. Well, it's on par with uh, they just don't want to. Well, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. But I would like to get the public more outraged about it. But I, you know, I don't think, I don't know. I, I don't think people really care that much, you know. It's like a vocal minority, but I mean, it's the same thing of like black women writing about something for like years and then there's one article about it by a white guy and suddenly it's like trending. Yeah, that's, it's very true. And, you know, that's why I always say, look, we have a lot of white male allies and I love them dearly. And I know there's always this thing on the, on Twitter, like, and I don't often get that. Like, I'm always thinking like, you know, who cares how much they talk and how much press they get? I would rather have them than not have them. Like, I don't sign up to the school of feminism that like, why are they so loud? They shouldn't be talking. No, like I need them to be loud because literally that's the only thing that's going to change things. It just is what it is. If we want to have change in a system where white males have the most power, we need white male allies to help us. End of story. We do not need to, like, fucking poke them with sticks and push them back out. Like, so sometimes I think, hell, if I were them, 
I wouldn't dare to go into that uh, circus either, you know? Yeah. I mean, and again, I uh, all of those points about taking up space and why is he getting all the press for this feminism and stuff, I get all that. But listen, why can't we fucking look at this like war <laughs> and just have a fucking strategy? If you have some, you know, strong giants on your side, don't fucking like talk about how that giant is standing in your sun. Like you just sent the giant. I mean, have you not watched Game of Thrones? <laughs> you sent the giant into fight. You don't push the giant out because he's taking your space, you know? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, yeah, but I I always think about like, Who's was it Jurassic World that they literally just like plucked a guy from nowhere to direct that like a guy who had done like nothing? Uh, yeah, I think they've done that several times now. I mean, I think it was Colin Trevor. That's the same guy who said women really don't want to direct Great. any big movies. Yes, that guy. So Colin Trevor. So yeah. I remember they, they like just pulled him from nowhere to direct Jurassic World. And it was like, I don't think anybody liked Jurassic World. And that guy will like keep working. Well, no, now he's doing Star Trek or Star Wars like, or one of the big ones. bonkers. Yeah. Like, I'm, a friend of mine is a female director, and she just directed her first feature, which is uh, was very low budget, but, like, is doing really well in film festivals. And um, she was like, I really want to direct the Clue movie that they're making. And yeah. I was like, some dude who's never, who's, like, made one music video, like, they'll probably give that to that guy. And, like, they won't even... <laughs> Like she's, well, that's how Mac Chi started. Mac Chi was a music video director, and then they gave him $150 million to make Charlie's Angels. But then, like, yeah. Carly, my friend who wants to direct Clue, like, she's going to have to direct, like, 400 other things before they even, like, get her a meeting for that, if if that. Yeah, although you should introduce me to her. I may have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I think we have to, like, if we, you know, the, I read this interesting thing the other day about you know, tokenism and what it does to people and stuff. And, you know, one of the things I regret is that there's just not a lot of solidarity. And frankly, I'm not great at it either because most of the women in my profession, like, you know, I, I really can't stand them. And I think it's them and they probably think it's me. But, you know, again, when you read about it, it's conditional. And there's actually, there was a great study I read about it that that kind of shows that when you're in a position where you're the one in the room, you're the one who's with the guys, you're the one who made it in, actually those women are all famous for rejecting any kind of uh, affirmative action, any kind of diversity steps, any kind of thing that would make them not be the only one in the room. And then there comes a point where there is a push and everything starts becoming more hostile because now you have the majority losing ground and now everybody fights. The problem is that the marginalized group in all this time feels always so insecure and so under fire that we never grow this solidarity. And in, historically, every time a marginalized group managed to have the solidarity, they won. But see, again, this is all happens in either secret rooms or somebody like Carly can't even get in the room. Why are we not becoming the room? Like, let's say she goes out and she makes a two-minute proof of concept, something she can afford herself for clue, why she should be the clue. And there would be like 20, 30 of us who are well-known and would say, this is what we want to happen. We actually want her to have this shot. It could happen. Like, But we don't do this enough. And it frustrates me because, again, like as somebody coming from sports, I can see the play and I can never get people to like fucking play it with me. Look, 
There's a thing that we say a lot about how you can't be it unless you see it. Meaning, like, you can't think that you can be a film director as a little girl unless you see a woman directing films. And I think for me and Lexi, it was like seeing her be a person successful in Hollywood, working in Hollywood, speaking out on these matters. Until I saw that, I didn't think that I could be that person and still be successful. And so now what she's talking about is this new wave of women actually being rewarded for speaking out on these things. I just, that gives me so much hope because I wonder all the time if we're going to have to keep playing this this game. I also want to talk about the part in the interview where Lexi talks about straight white male allies and how she doesn't begrudge them for taking up space because she thinks that there are giants in the fight. And I may have disagreed with that prior to speaking with her, but I think she did change my mind or at least open my mind a bit to the idea that we shouldn't be angry at men for speaking about feminism because it gets the results, but we can question a society wherein their voices are more elevated. I was listening to that part of the interview back with Garrett. You might remember him from being my former co-worker and boyfriend. And he was like, yes, I agree with her. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah, I think sometimes I don't say things because I'm worried that women will be like, it's not your place. And I was like, you should say all the things. Like, you should absolutely say all the things in support of feminism and in support of women. And I think that she may have had a point that I hadn't previously considered. I hope all of this sexism in Hollywood and racism in Hollywood is like a dying last gasp. And it's just going hard right now until it crumbles. In the meantime, though, I guess we'll all just need to hire some guy to punch us in the face. listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating. And be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is a safe space. Also, feel free to tell your friends who run elaborate schemes against their credit card companies to maximize the value of their rewards points. Ooh, you can do that. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Our engineer is Josh Lewis, and thanks also to Peter Gilstrap for production assistance on this episode. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera. Our show art is by Cameron Glavin. And I am Gabby, period, done, period. And I will talk to you next time. Bye! Bye!